1: I have you loud and clear.
0: (laughs) Hello. 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 Hello.
2: Welcome. (laughs) Science. And
0: that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
3: Time. Brain. Life. The Universe. Hello, this week on the programme we are asking one of the most difficult questions of biology. We actually
4: cannot answer the question.
2: Trying to turn back the clock. Oh, we really wish we had a time machine and could see what was going on. And piece together
3: the clues. So it's a
5: very difficult jigsaw puzzle.
3: To find out, how did life begin? I'm Georgia Mills and this is The Naked Scientists.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk
1: This is the monster bed, which has been um, excavated out of the main quarry um, and placed in this uh, safe area for us to hunt through today.
3: Kings Dyke Nature Reserve in Peterborough. I'm with Jamie Jordan from Fossils Galore, and we've gone fossil hunting. You never
1: know, you might come across some bones or teeth or other prehistoric creatures as well that lived in this shallow tropical sea from the Jurassic.
3: I'm so excited. Might I find a dinosaur?
1: You might do. Yeah, <gasps> you never know. Okay, um, I'll just get some tools out.
3: Oh yes, show me your tool set. Okay, so I've got so the there's a hammer
1: there. A hammer, chisel as well. You got that? Hammer and chisel. Yeah. Okay, so we'll start heading down, and I'll,
3: okay. I'll
1: show you how to find them. So be looking for material like um, this one over here. So can you see how shelly it is? Oh yes. So what we've got here, we've got lots of ammonites, which are uh, prehistoric uh, cephalopods as such. So um, they'd have lots of tentacles, uh, a little bit like the modern-day nautilus that's nice. swimming around today. So as you can see, there's, there's hundreds yeah, of them nice. just everywhere. Uh, but like I was saying, every centimetre of clay is 10,000 years of time. Wow. So let's find you at a rock which you can split open a lot bigger.
2: Ooh. Need <laughs> yep.
3: I can use the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ready. What have we got in here?
1: So you've got lots Ooh. more ammonites in there.
3: This is an ammonite hotbed.
1: Yeah. And you've also got uh, fish poo in there as well. Fish bone? Uh, fish poo. Fish, you poo. You yeah, fish poo.
3: Yep, fish poo. So It's known
1: as coprolite.
3: That's the, that's the classy term for it. <laughs> it. No dinosaurs then, but lucky me, I found some fish poo. And I had the auspicious honour in being the first person to see it in 160 million years. It might seem strange, but 160 million years actually is pretty recent when it comes to life's history. It doesn't even get as close to when life began. To find that out, we need to journey much further back in time, billions of years, to an unrecognisable planet... I'll be looking into how scientists are investigating this question from simulating early Earth situations to sending weather balloons up into the stratosphere. But before we try and tackle the how, what about the when? How long ago might life have started and what was the Earth like when it did? Here's planetary expert David Rothery from The Open University.
5: Well, we're pretty sure that the Earth and the other rocky planets in the solar system formed about just over four and a half billion years ago through a series of collisions between progressively larger and larger clumps of debris called planetary embryos. The early Earth was very different from the Earth we see today. After the last large collision, which is probably the collision which formed our moon as debris around the Earth, you were left with a body which was essentially molten on the outside. It would have had an iron core in the middle, but the outer part would have been molten. And this slowly froze over from the top down, giving you an early crust. That would be unstable, it'd be rifted apart many times, and you'd have eruptions onto the surface. So the surface would be continually reforming itself and the atmosphere above this surface would not be breathable anyway. There was no free oxygen, there's a lot of carbon dioxide. There was nitrogen which we still have today, but apart from that carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide, it would have been unbreathable hot, unstable, and no breathable atmosphere. We can trace it back to nearly 3.8 billion years old. Beyond that, the record is obscured because the Earth was being hit still by the kind of debris which formed the large basins on the Moon. There was still debris around in the solar system, so the Earth would have been hit periodically by impacts which would sterilise a large part of the surface. It's possible life started more than once and was then obliterated and had to start over again. So we could have had life older than 4 billion years ago, but no traces of that survive.
3: We were back in time uh, when we know the oldest life was starting to appear uh, 3.8 billion years ago. What would the Earth have been like and how do we know?
5: OK, well, the geological record is is pretty patchy, but it's fairly clear that the continents had not grown to anything like their present size by then. Uh, there would only be small continental areas, rather like present-day island arcs. Uh, think of the island arcs in the Pacific, or think of uh, Japan or bits of Indonesia, if you will. But no large continents. That continental crust hadn't grown. And above this, an atmosphere which was as dense, possibly denser than today, but no free oxygen, calm dioxide, nitrogen, sulphur dioxide. And it's not until about two billion years ago, the oxygen levels started to creep up because that's when photosynthetic organisms appeared in the sea uh, that would um, start turning, breaking carbon dioxide apart and liberating oxygen.
3: OK, so when we look at the geological record, how can we tell then, for example, there wasn't oxygen around or there was this sulphur and this nitrogen?
5: Well, you can tell the lack of oxygen from the, uh, the minerals that form Today, many metals, for example, in the surface environment will oxidise, iron will turn to rust. You get none of this going on two or three billion years ago. The oxygen levels really were minuscule at that point. So it's a very difficult jigsaw puzzle, but fascinating to think of what the Earth would be like. You wouldn't recognise it if you flew by in a spacecraft, because it would be a very watery looking planet. There'd be shallow oceans everywhere and small clusters of islands peeking up above the oceans.
3: Do we know anything about what the temperature was like? Surface temperatures in the past are
5: probably quite variable. The young sun would have been a little bit fainter than it is today, so giving us slightly less warmth. But if we had more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the past, as we think we did, that's a good greenhouse gas, so it would have trapped the solar heat more efficiently. So, you know fainter sun but stronger greenhouse effects, you might think they would balance out. But there are traces in the geological record that more than once in the past, the earth was trapped in a what's called an ice house condition where the surface water everywhere would have been frozen over. It would have been a ball of ice. And these ice house conditions lasted for tens of millions of years at a time. So we've got ice house conditions, a a snowball Earth, some of the time, but mostly exposed water in between.
3: Everything you've said to me so far about early Earth is the fact that there's no oxygen, it's been very cold, it's had lots of stinking sulphur everywhere, there's only rocks to eat. It doesn't sound to me like a good place for life to be.
5: Well, the early Earth would not be a good place for our kind of life. But our environment that we do so well in has been manufactured by life. It was microbes that liberated the oxygen. It was plants that did that, microbial plants, and then the the higher plants that spread to land. And until that happened, our kind of life could not exist at all. The early earth was a great place for life. Yeah, microbial life that that doesn't like oxygen would have found the early earth a very pleasant place to live. But... uh, Not for us. So if you say, was it a good place for life, you have to specify what kind of life are you thinking of?
3: Understanding that life way back then was very different to how it works today has implications in our quest to find E.T. Well, if if we're looking for life
5: elsewhere, um, we shouldn't expect um, planets to be in the same state that the Earth is. Uh, if there is an exoplanet similar to the Earth, we'd hope to be able to identify in its atmosphere that the atmosphere has been put out of balance by living processes. And that will, that's the, probably the easiest kind of extraterrestrial life to detect at remote distances. But I would expect that there are many exoplanets which are Earth-like, which have not developed yet into the state that the present-day Earth is, which still have these very primitive atmospheres hardly touched by life, So there could be lots of worlds with microbes living on the deep ocean floors, which leave no clear trace in the atmospheres yet. Uh, So they'll be hidden from our view, even with our best instruments. So there could be lots of life-bearing planets, which are going to be exceedingly hard to recognise as such.
3: David Rothery. And this search for life elsewhere in the galaxy is actually what led one team to make an amazing discovery.
6: So is this... uh... Is my voice going to be in... It's a radio broadcast. Yes. Yeah, my voice is going to be there. Is that okay?
7: Mm -hmm.
3: This is Dominic Papineau. He's at the London Centre for Nanotechnology at the University College London, and his team announced this year they've found the oldest fossil evidence of life on Earth, clocking in at over 3.7 billion years. Dominic's interest actually lies in searching for life elsewhere in the galaxy, but for now, that hunt has taken him deep into the Earth's past.
6: I'm going about it the only way that uh, technologically we, cur- we, we currently can, uh, although we do have rovers that are somewhat capable on Mars to directly search for signs of life, and there's also the SETI program. But that's not my... My uh, approach is uh, mostly looking at the the di- very distant past on the early Earth and uh, trying to identify signs of life and uh, understand the, the kind of environmental conditions where... Where these uh, where these microbial communities were living, because we're we're obviously talking about microorganisms at that time. There were no trees, fungus, or or, or other animals. Uh, all this macroscopic life that we see today wasn't there uh, back uh, uh, in 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 most of the Archean, probably.
3: So you're searching for something very very small. How do you, how do you even start?
6: You need to target. I think the right rocks. You kind of narrow it down to some of the oldest rock sequences out there. And uh, this uh, rock sequence that I've been at in uh, 2008 in northern Quebec, the Nouveau-Agitouk Supercrustal Belt, is known to be at least Eowarkean in age since 2004. So the Eowarkean is this uh, first time period that the sedimentary rock record appears.
3: Okay, so was it a case of hey, these rocks are really, really old, let's have a look in them, and then you're just hoping you might find something.
6: So not quite. The uh, nouveau Supercrustal Belt is about 3 kilometers uh, in length, and the uh, Banded Iron Formation Unit that uh, is kind of smack in the middle of this belt, uh, has been known uh, for more than a decade now. And I was studying our information, so I was interested in, in, in these particular biffs as well because they're very ancient. They're, they were as old as those I was looking for uh, uh, from Isua and the island of Akelia in Greenland. And that was going to be another example of key and Benadar information. So I went there in the hope of finding similar things as what people had found and I, I myself had found and uh, I found even better I found that the, the red that banded our formations with concretions so uh, Eureka. <laughs>
3: so it's a combination of the fact that they were very old and the the type of rock that made them of interest to you.
6: Yes exactly exactly.
3: When you found something what did you find what did it look like?
6: So I was there specifically for the beneraren information, So I walked along strike back and forth and I, it was striking to me that at one particular site, very localized, uh, there are there were outcrops of this red beneraren information. And when I when I was walking on it, I was carefully looking at at, at the rock and I could see these rounded Uh, spherical structures which I had seen in the Hammersley before and so I knew that these concretions had something to say so I sampled them and 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 that's exactly where we found the microfossils.
3: And you've got some of your uh, selection of these rocks in in your cabinet in your office they're very pretty but I wouldn't I would never expect they contained any kind of life.
6: Right. So uh, if you go to the Museum of Natural History, for instance, uh, you can uh, see that uh, very often the marine animal fossils are preserved in these kind of rounded bits of rock. They're called concretions. They're they're called limestone concretions. They have various names, actually. And the reality is that in geology, we don't really have a, a good explanation for how they formed these particular structures. But we know that in the recent, in the young geological record, that uh, they're associated frequently with uh, animal fossils.
3: Can we go and have a look at your fossils then?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. This is what we see.
3: Oh, wow. So that's
6: what you say. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's your first one.
3: So this is a slice of the rock. From your office, a very thin slice yeah. under a microscope. But it's a, a
6: little thicker than the usual ones. So we're experimenting with different techniques now. But uh, yeah, so this is what these
3: things oh, look wow. like. It's very, it's like, I'd have a photo of this in my house. It's a bit like Jackson Pollock or something. It's a sort of white background and then little flecks of red and black.
6: And there's a twisting, like a spiral. Oh, yeah. That's like that's a, like a corkscrew. corkscrew. Yeah.
3: In the slide amongst the flecks of red, you can clearly see a black spiralling tendril. Dominic suggests this could have been made by a microscopic creature, maybe similar to modern-day bacteria. But could these shapes simply be caused by geological processes?
6: So far we've had one substantial criticism, and that is that there are these so-called chemical gardens that uh, can grow tubular structures and other uh, such non-biological experiments have been successful at growing these uh, filaments that are sometimes twisted. So they have morphologies that look like they could potentially be analogs to the features that we observed. But if we just consider this kind of comparison based on the morphology, this is one of the main reasons why there's been so much controversy in the past. It's because there's very little lines of evidence. But if you consider the bulk of our lines of evidence, we have 12 independent lines of evidence. So I I think this is bulletproof.
3: The 12 lines of evidence are the various shapes and chemicals found in the rock. The patterns, the radioactive isotopes, they've all been associated with life. Some on their own can appear without the presence of life, but altogether Dominic is confident he has the oldest evidence of life on Earth, which is pretty exciting. I mean I
6: celebrated <laughs> with my wife but uh you know when my student Matt Dodd took these images and did the due diligence and and uh, he cataloged the images and mapped everything that he was uh, looking at as I instructed him he uh, he brought to me the, these very compelling images and at some point he brought me this this fossil with the twisted stalks uh, and these were were uh, very compelling, in my opinion. So I was, this was yay. We, <laughs> we we have we have the oldest fossils. I mean, it's 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 exciting, but ultimately it's it's what it implies with respect to the rapidity that life arises on the planetary surface, the conditions in which it arises. Uh, it has implications for evolutionary biology because many of these microfossils that we find are similar. To, microfossils that are to to microorganisms that are living today in, in these kinds of environments. So there's a continuity in biology that tells us that some organisms haven't changed much over all this time. So uh, it has implications for the origin of life. It has implications for exobiology. I think it's an important discovery, but it, it's, it's one that's going to be uh, followed by many more to come.
3: Dominic Papineau, here on The Naked Scientist's So the stage is set for Act 1 of life on Earth. It's a very different world to the one we live in now. So how do you get from chemistry to something that's alive? Well, the first thing you need for life is its basic building blocks, and these are called organic molecules. These always have a carbon atom in them, and they're found across all living things today. But where did these come from? Well, one of the most famous experiments into the origin of life was the Miller-Urey experiment, They simulated what they thought the early Earth environment was like, with water, methane, ammonia and hydrogen, and they shot electricity through it to simulate lightning bolts. And what they found afterwards were a whole bunch of these organic molecules, including amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. It's since been discovered that Miller and Urey didn't quite have the early Earth atmosphere right, but there have since been other similar experiments which have found the same results. So it looks like these organic molecules could have formed naturally on early Earth. But then what?
2: My name's Laura Landweber, and I'm a professor at Columbia University in the departments of biochemistry and molecular biophysics and biological sciences. Getting some of these raw materials organized would have been a really critical step and also getting them encapsulated and today into what are cellular structures or in what could have been other ways in which compartmentalization could have captured the raw ingredients that were necessary for life. there are many steps that would have had to have taken place but a key one along the steps towards the origin of modern life is how Information arose and how that information could become transferred into functional properties. So, we have metabolism in cells and we also have genomes in cells. And linking those two together is one of the most critical steps in life's origin.
3: Genomes are the sum total of DNA in the living thing, it's the instruction manual you need to make proteins and to make copies of yourself. And metabolism is just as important, it's the process of obtaining energy from something in the environment.
2: Metabolic functions, the notion of a cell's metabolism, the day-to-day events that go on in a cell, today they're primarily catalyzed by proteins.
3: Proteins take on many important functions in our modern-day cells, including our energy production and our DNA function. But here's the rub. To make proteins, we need the coding instructions from DNA. But we just heard DNA doesn't work without the help of proteins we have a chicken and egg paradox. How did it first get started?
2: Absolutely, it is a real chicken and egg problem. People have wondered for uh, decades which came first, the information content of a cell, which is today largely in the form of a DNA genome, or the functional components of a cell today largely uh, supplied by proteins. So to answer, if we can, at best we can, this chicken and egg paradox, which came first, the structural properties of proteins that can perform metabolic roles, or DNA. Which came first? To answer that question, RNA came to the rescue.
3: RNA is very similar to DNA. Just like DNA, it's made from four bases and can form long chains. Today, RNA is used in our cells as a kind of middleman, helping to send messages around – there's a clue in one part of our cell as to another role RNA may have had.
2: Housed within all of our cells is a big factory called the ribosome. And the ribosome takes RNA sequences and makes proteins. But one key that we learned from the structure of the ribosome is that at its catalytic core, the functional part of the ribosome that's really in the business of making proteins, is only RNA. And that helps us understand that actually You can make proteins from RNA. So you can take RNA molecules and add that to what's called a ribosomal RNA and make something out of it that becomes a protein. And there's a lot of protein itself in the ribosome that helps make other proteins, but it would be a bit of an ontological quandary if you needed protein to make protein. So the fact that you can make protein from RNA helps us build a model for how proteins and protein synthesis evolved from a more primitive system on our planet. And it's beautiful and elegant to recognize that at the catalytic core of the protein synthesis apparatus and pretty much all cells on our planet is an RNA machine. And so that's called a, a ribozyme. It's also part of the ribosome. And these factories for producing proteins are comprised of this mixture of RNA and protein that today function together, but it helps us understand how simpler structures built entirely of RNA, probably assisted by smaller bits of proteins, namely the amino acids themselves, could participate in complex processes.
3: The idea that RNA came first and was helping to build proteins and provide this information is known as the RNA world hypothesis. But how did the RNA itself get created?
2: Yes, so the building blocks of RNA are four letters, A, C, G, and U. The formation of those original building blocks is something which is uh, challenging to explain. Some researchers have recently made some terrific progress. But we can also look to our own cosmos to get a basic understanding of where some of this information could have arisen and even if you look on pieces of meteorites you can find some of the, some of the building blocks for both amino acids and for nucleic acids there now one of the strengths of this field has been its history in organic chemistry demonstrating the synthesis of The nucleotide adenine was one of the first experiments, the Oro experiment. It was a long time before another lab demonstrated the synthesis of some of the other nucleotides, but now we have a good understanding that it's feasible to synthesize them on an early planet. And one can even detect the raw precursors to a lot of these nucleic acids in meteoritic material, which means that the precursors for life as some like to say, would have been raining down on our planet in its early days, arriving from interstellar dust as well as meteorites and also from comets, so themselves replete with water. They would have delivered possibly a lot of the opportunity for the raw organic materials needed to create the building blocks of life on our early planet.
3: Laura Landweber from Columbia University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and I'm investigating the origin of life on Earth. If you'd like to get in touch, please do. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Earlier in the programme, we heard how the first life originated in a vastly different Earth to the one we know and love today, and how the precursors of life, organic molecules, could have been created through natural chemical reactions over time. And we also heard why DNA's cousin, RNA, is a promising candidate for the molecule which started it all. Still to come, I'll be probing some other theories about the origins of life, including why hydrothermal vents may have housed the very first cells, and looking at one idea which is, quite literally, out of this world.
8: Panspermia essentially is the idea that life came from space. It did not originate here on Earth, it came in.
3: But before that, does RNA really have all the answers?
9: Uh, Yeah, this is Markus Alser. I'm a research fellow at the University of Cambridge and a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Historically speaking, uh, many people have tried to explain everything with the emergence of RNA, and I think this is very difficult.
3: Marcus is unconvinced RNA could really have pushed along those early reactions needed for life, what we call metabolism.
9: So every cell consumes a lot of nutrients, And this is very essential for life. And therefore, cells need systems to convert all of these different nutrients into the molecules that your cells actually need. And that's what we in biochemistry uh, call metabolism. And the way it works is a series of several hundred reactions that happen in all of our cells. And um, from a lot of different angles, we think that metabolism had not many origins in evolution, but probably just one. And um, it's very important to, to understand those origins of metabolism to get a feeling about which processes enabled life to emerge.
3: So Marcus is investigating this from the point of view of those reactions themselves, looking at just how they work.
9: So we systematically test. So we know which reactions are important for metabolism. And they are typically catalyzed by enzymes. And a few years ago, we stumbled into some reactions which look like those enzyme driven reactions but they don't require enzymes and then they use analytical instruments called mass spectrometers which allow us to measure thousands and thousands of samples and we systematically test which reactions can happen in those samples.
3: Okay so one of the problems with the me- metabolic pathways is that they need these enzymes these proteins to, in, to help them happen but what you've said is that some of these can happen without the help of proteins they can just occur anyway and so you're throwing together a load of chemistry in an early earth simulation and then just seeing which of these reactions you can recreate.
9: Yeah exactly so for modern life we need enzymes but the difficulty is that enzymes themselves are made off of products of metabolism so you end up in a chicken egg problem um, uh, to know what was first and for a long time this was an unsolved question, but in the moment people started to see that you can do reactions as they happen in metabolism without enzymes. And um, the hypothesis uh, that that the whole thing started without enzymes has gotten a huge boost.
3: So how do you simulate the early earth? In my head, I'm just imagining a room <laughs> where you've made it look like early earth, but I'm assuming it's not like that.
9: Yeah, it, it's very small volumes of liquid, so we are not simulating ten thousands of liters here in the ocean. So we simulate little droplets, 40 microliters, 15 microliters, and we add different components that people believe could have existed on the on Earth. And those people we talk to, they obtain this information from sediments, so from stones that they find around the world, and they can date them. To this period. So, and um, not everything is preserved from the time, so a lot of the things one needs to infer, but there is some solid evidence from the geoscientists uh, which which molecules made up the early planet and then we have the metabolites that we know that are essential for life we know that they had to play a role uh, at the early stages of life because now they are essential for life yeah? so that's our, our logic views and then we see which reactions can they do without enzymes present in those conditions and very often we see that many of the reactions that these metabolites then undergo are the ones that we can find again to be essential for for the life of our cells
3: and do you do anything to this simulation? Do you add heat or energy in any way or do you just leave it there and see what
9: happens? Yeah, we did different sorts of things. Um, in the beginning, we started with heat because many people think that chemical reactions um, are accelerated by heat. And this is typically true. So many reactions uh, require certain activation energy to happen. Meanwhile, we have ex- expanded this and we test all sorts of different environments. One of them, for instance, is ice. So we see a surprising high reactivity of of metabolic reactions to happen in frozen conditions. So there is a huge span and therefore I would say at the moment the the answer is open uh, what the right environment was for uh, those processes to start.
3: So you're putting these metabolites in and you're putting them under certain conditions and you're finding without enzymes they can react and make what exactly?
9: They make other metabolites that are part of our cells. And this is then not stopping at one metabolite, and then one metabolite forms the next metabolite and the next and the next. And this results in an entire network. And so we can then take those networks and compare them with the networks as they happen in our cells. And as closer we get, as more likely that we have found an origin of such a metabolic system.
3: So do you think then that this, this metabolic reactions, they just sort of started cropping up in this early earth? And I th- I guess then what?
9: I would say this the the other way around. So in order to have life, you have to have chemical reactions that happen. And life needs a fundament to build on. And um, when you start to think about how metabolic pathways evolve, you need to have a system which produces a product. Because only if you have something which provides an advantage, a Darwinian selection procedure can start. Now you have again a chicken-egg problem here. If you need multiple enzymes to form a product, uh, but you cannot form the product to select for you have nothing to start with. So we think that these chemical networks were a starting point for evolution to pick about those molecules which provide an advantage and they could select upon. So you can imagine you have a system with 10 reactions and then one of them is the slowest or the least efficient reaction. And this is the reaction that evolution can improve first in order to create a product better. If you would need to start to work on all 10 reactions at the same time, it would be a system which would be much more likely to fail.
3: Marcus Rosler. So these chemical reactions could have been a starting point for evolution. There's competition between the systems for resources, and then when you have competition, the most efficient systems survive. Some argue that this is the start of life, these metabolic reactions, rather than RNA. And the jury's still out on that one. But according to one theory, the first life on Earth may have already been pretty developed.
8: Hello. Yeah, I am Professor Milton Wainwright. Um, I'm from the Department of Molecular Biology and Biotechnology at the University of Sheffield. Now, my view, uh, the one I'm working on, is that life came from space, so-called panspermia. Now, panspermia means seeds everywhere. So the idea is the cosmos is full of life and it floats around or it arrives in meteorites. And when it hits a planet, life is um, delivered there. So it's opposite to the kind of general chemical theory, which most scientists believe in, the idea that life originated on Earth. So we're saying that life does not necessarily, it could have done, uh, that is, originate on Earth. We think life came in from space, and it continues to come in from space uh, as we speak.
3: And why do you think this is the case?
8: One of the problems with the chemical origin of life is that it happened very quickly. And many people think that it was too fast for it to have evolved through the chemical theory. So we believe that uh, as soon as the Earth was cool enough, imagine these organisms coming in all the time, as soon as the Earth cooled enough, then the organisms could take off, multiply and so on. And uh, that would be very rapid.
3: How do you go about testing this or investigating this?
8: Well, neither theory can be really proven. The chemical theory, the idea that life came from chemicals, we can keep on playing with different combinations of chemicals, but we can't actually prove it. Now, what we're doing is we're sending balloons to the stratosphere to see if life is coming in. So the idea basically is that if life originated on Earth from panspermia, if it came in, then presumably it will be coming in now because nothing fundamentally has changed. So if we catch life coming in, then that's the possibility that life originated in this way.
3: Okay, so you're sending up these balloons and and how do they work and what, what are you looking for?
8: Basically, the the balloon goes up to a height of about 30 kilometres. It carries with it kind of a black box. Well, this opens in the stratosphere. We use GPS to locate the height and everything, the position and so on. And when this drawer opens, whatever is falling falls onto these very small stubs. And these stubs can go straight into a high-powered electron microscope. So anything that falls on the stubs, we can look at the surface, and uh, this is how we, we, we do the work.
3: And how can you be sure what falls on the stubs is from outside of Earth?
8: Well, let me tell you what we found first. We found a, n- a number of very unusual organisms. We've not found them on Earth, and we can use a machine to detect that they are biological. Now, we don't know what they are, so we call them biological entities. The question is, of course, the critics will say, well, there's plenty of stuff on Earth, there's plenty of life on Earth, it's just floating up to this height. I might point out that 30 kilometres is a very... It is extreme height. When we do modelling studies, we find that the only particles that could reach this height would be around 5 microns. Now, the organisms we're finding are 40 microns, so they're much too big, theoretically, to go to that height. But the main reason we think they're coming in is very straightforward. We do not find on our samples any grass, pollen, fungus spores. Now, if this life was coming from Earth, our samplers would be covered in this material. Now the other main reason is that some of the particles form impact events. That is, they form little craters. This means that they're coming at speed. They're not kind of lazily floating up from Earth. They're coming from somewhere at speed. And again, this is suggestive they're coming in from without.
3: These organisms then, have you found DNA in them? Tell me about them. What are they like?
8: Let me tell you why we, we know they're organisms, first of all. They have what we call bilateral symmetry. That means that they're equal on either side. Now, if this was a bit of fluff, then you know you wouldn't get this kind of bilateral symmetry. So think of yourself. You put a line down the middle of you. You're equal on either side. So that tells us something. That tells us they're organised. Now the question then is, are they biological? Now the electron microscope we use is very fancy. We can put a crosshair on our sample, press a button and look at the element, the elemental composition. And we find it's made of carbon, oxygen and a little nitrogen. Now that is the exact signature for an organism. So they've got form, they've got structure, they're made of biological material. And this is why we think they are living organisms. Now, as I said before, we can't correlate them with any known organisms. But of course, you could argue that's just because we haven't found them. But they're there, they're out there and they're coming in um, from the stratosphere.
3: What would you need to find or what would you need to be able to do for people to start accepting that these things are indeed from outside of Earth?
8: Well, the first thing people could do was repeat our experiments, of course. Science is based on repetition. But what the kind of acid test that we would like to do is what's called an isotope fractionation. Basically, organisms are made up of a carbon with different isotopes, and if an organism came from space, it might have a different isotope ratio to the ones on Earth. So if we could find the machine that could do this, we could, again, put a crosshair on our sample, press a button, and get the isotope fractionation. And that would tell us whether it comes from space or Earth, possibly. (laughs) The problem with all these kind of experiments is you you kind of predict them and you think about them and then something else, some other problem turns up. But that's a very, very, very difficult um, experiment because these organisms are very small. So it's not easy.
3: If you're right, and these things are from outside of Earth, then you have found... The first evidence of alien life.
8: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the trouble is convincing people, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's that's the big trouble. I mean, um, I give talks about this all over the world, and um, people are very sceptical, of course, as, as rightly they should be. But no one yet has kind of come up with a reason why our data is wrong. Now we call this neo panspermia. Neo for new, and we're saying as you walk outside any building you're covered with these organisms from space. They're coming in all the time, they're coming from the year dot, and this is where life, we believe, originated from.
3: So we're we're just setting everything, searching really hard for aliens, but we're just covered in them.
8: (laughs) Yeah, of course, they're extremely small, so you wouldn't see them.
3: Are we being constantly showered in tiny aliens? You can keep the umbrellas at bay for now. Milton is the first to admit his ideas haven't gained acceptance in the scientific community, and people have offered alternative suggestions into how those structures, which closely resemble microscopic algae, could have got up that high from Earth. And as the saying goes, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But in terms of panspermia, while the idea itself hasn't been disproven, it still can't explain how that initial jump from chemistry to biology began. It merely moves our problem somewhere slightly more exotic. But perhaps the location of life's origin is important to consider when we're trying to work out how it might have happened. This is the sound of an active hydrothermal vent – these are kind of cracks in our planet's surface where hot water plumes out. And some people think this is where the first life began, including Dr Nick Lane from University College London.
4: Essentially these vents are microporous labyrinths of intercollected pores. And the pores have got very thin, inorganic walls around them. That's what the barrier is, is the walls around these pores. And the pores may be a few micrometres across, and perhaps just a micron thick, the barriers around it. So they're, they're, they're bigger than cells, but we're getting down to a cell-like size, and it has the same structure as cells, that's what's intriguing about it. You have essentially a pore with a barrier around it that's equivalent to the cell membrane, and effectively a charge on that barrier. And so we have a, we have a kind of topology which is equivalent to cells.
3: Oh, right, and you think this kind of structure... The fact that it's similar to cells and it's got this barrier, like a cell would have a membrane, means that it's possible these were where life started.
4: That's my view. You would find lots of people who (laughs) would sweep that aside.
3: Nick believes that we might be missing something when we run those simulations of how those first organic molecules were created, and that the missing piece of the puzzle is looking at how cells do it today which is through using carbon dioxide and hydrogen, powered by an electrical charge on their membranes. Primitive creatures called methanogens could provide a clue. Uh,
4: The simplest cells like methanogens, for example, they live from carbon dioxide and hydrogen, so just gases. The kind of gases that just bubble out of the ground, in fact hydrogen gas bubbles out of uh, hydrothermal vents, They don't react easily, hydrogen and CO2. If they did, we could probably fix global warming by stripping CO2 out of the air, and we could fix the energy crisis by making synthetic gasoline. So I'm sure people have been looking at this behind closed doors for a a long time. But this is what methanogens do, and to get them to react, they use um, some of the simplest, most ancient proteins that we know about, things like ferrodoxin, which are iron-sulfur proteins, and the, the cofactor that does the chemistry is, in fact, a mineral... Uh, a very small mineral made of iron and sulphur. And and these are the kind of minerals that form spontaneously in the vents that we're interested in. And the other thing that the methanogens do is they use this electrical charge on the membrane, as well as these iron-sulphur proteins, to drive the reaction between hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And that's what I think could happen spontaneously in the vents because there's natural structures, barriers including these iron-sulphide minerals... and and natural uh, proton gradients, so equivalent to the charge on the membrane. Uh, And so the prediction is that it, it ought to drive that reaction, and if it does, then we can look for organic molecules being formed that way.
3: So the hydrothermal vents provide us with a network of pores which are similar to cells, a natural charge on the barriers which could drive reactions, and they're rich in the chemicals which are used by all cells today to grow. So can we recreate this environment to look for these reactions?
4: We would love to do that. The issue, of course, is that these vents can be 60 metres tall. There can be, you know, today the the few that we know about uh, come in fields, which can be kilometres square across. And we think four billion years ago uh, that they could have spread all across the entire seafloor. And so the whole planet becomes a, a chemistry lab from that point of view. Uh, and there's millions of years to spare and there's high pressures and high concentrations of hydrogen. So to try and do it in the lab is a joke in the sense that we cannot possibly simulate very much of that. But what we can simulate is the is the structure. So in effect, what you have are, are barriers containing iron, sulfur, minerals, and those are semiconducting, which means electrons can pass across this barrier. Um, and on one side we have... Uh, Simulated alkaline hydrothermal fluids The kind of things that we see in the vents today Down at the bottom of the oceans And on the other side What we think would have been an acidic early ocean Mildly acidic And maybe pH 6 or something So only slightly acidic With lots of carbon dioxide in it And the the idea is that the, the that difference in pH The difference in acidity Will help drive that reaction Transferring electrons across the barrier and so that's the kind of experiment that's, you know, relatively easy, conceptually at least, to set up in the lab. The reality is that uh, even very simple systems turn out to be more complex than <laughs> you can really control.
3: Well, have you, had any, have you had any results yet?
4: It looks as if we are able to make simple organic molecules. And from those simple organic molecules, it's uh, relatively easy to go on and produce more complex ones, like, for example, ribose or deoxyribose, which are the sugars used in DNA and RNA. There's so many steps that uh, we're really probing the ones that seem easiest for us to do at any one time rather than necessarily the, the, the most coherent set of rational steps. We're doing the ones that we can actually do. Uh, and so there's big gaps everywhere. Um, and, and we're trying to repeat a lot of what we've already done. Um, I suppose the normal scepticism, there's if you if can't repeat everything with different people doing the same experiments, then you begin to worry that someone did it wrong or there was something, some, some reason why it's not believable, uh, you realise when you're looking for tiny amounts of, uh, of trace substances that actually are found on everybody's breath, for example, you've got to be really careful. It, you, it's very easy to make a fool of yourself by thinking you've made something when it turns out that you didn't at all, it was just on someone's breath.
3: <laughs> Eureka! Oh, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> exactly. Dr Nick Lane from UCL on why he thinks life began in a hydrothermal vent. And while he's working on more Eureka moments, there is other evidence to support his idea. Hydrothermal vents under the ocean are especially rich in life. And the earliest fossils, like Dominic's we saw earlier, are suspected to be from hydrothermal vents. But, of course, life could have originated elsewhere and then moved into the vents. And some argue these super hot smoking environments are too specialised, so leaving them would have been too tricky. So through one way or another, we get from chemistry to biology to these simple cells able to survive, make energy and reproduce. But the cells in you and I, along with all animals, plants and fungi, are a little bit more complicated than that. There are little membrane-bound compartments inside each one doing little jobs. There's the nucleus, which houses the genetic material, the mitochondria, which power the cell, and in plants there are chloroplasts, which are what enable them to convert sunlight into energy through photosynthesis. So how did these unfurnished cells get kitted out to become what we now call eukaryotes?
7: There's been quite a debate about this, and in the late 1960s, Lynn Margulis, very famous for the Gaia hypothesis, she put forward this idea that had been around for 100 years, or maybe even longer, that it's due to endosymbiosis, that one cell swallowed up and retained another cell inside it, and that this cell eventually became the mitochondrion. And once you understand how the mitochondrion gets there, you might understand how you get this kind of intracellular complexity that makes eukaryote cells.
3: So one cell eats another one, and instead of getting digested, it just stays there. It's now thought that before this unusual meal took place, the cells were already starting to become more complex on their insides, somehow creating these compartmental barriers
7: what you imagine is they get a mutation of some kind that generates all kinds of um, membranes inside the cell and gives the cell a capacity, let's say, to move things around in a more sophisticated way. And ultimately, having those membranes inside the cell helps make compartments. And so when eventually one day this cell gets a bacterium inside it, it holds on to that bacteria with the membrane, and eventually converts it to the mitochondrion. And the same thing happens a bit later on, another half billion years later, with what's called the chloroplast. So this was a free-living, photosynthesizing bacterium, which gets swallowed up by one of these complexifying cells. And because of these membranes and other structures inside, it's held there and made to do work.
3: And in this acquisition, what are these cells doing? Are they trying to eat them or is it a mistake? And either way, why doesn't it get destroyed when they're inside this cell?
7: First, I'm sure it happens many, many times and by far the majority get destroyed or digested I think there are different points of view, but you can imagine if you can swallow up a cell, if you've got a sort of membrane that allows you to swallow up other cells, this is a great source of food, right? So you've got all these other bacteria and archaea out there. You're a cell that's getting bigger yourself because you've got different membranes and compartments inside. You want food. And if you're able to swallow up cells, you're basically taking them into your body, which is just one cell size, and then if you happen not to digest one, or if one of them is something like a parasite even, and manages to stay there despite you trying to digest it, but eventually it might happen that cell that's ingested is retained. And once that happens, and if it can be passed on to the next generation, and if either it's not causing harm or it starts to cause a little bit of advantage, that thing will be retained. And the exact circumstances, I mean, it's you know still, I think, quite a mystery.
3: And do we have any evidence? How do we know that cells didn't just build their own mitochondria? Why do we think there was this external event?
7: This is a great question. And I think it's a very nice historical one, too. And this is why Lynn Margulis is so important to the story. So People had thought, way back in the 1890s and even before, so there's quite a bit of history on this, that perhaps the mitochondrion, and especially the chloroplast, were bacteria. They looked like bacteria. They had these membranes around them. They, in some ways, seemed to do metabolic activities that looked like bacteria, but that isn't conclusive evidence. So what Lynn Margulis did is she gathers together some of the structural evidence. Oh, look at their membranes. What kind of membranes have they got? She also looks at what they're doing and how they're doing it. She looks at the structure of uh, various parts of these uh, uh, endosymbionts. What she's then able to do is draw on the molecular evidence. Now, she doesn't do any of this molecular stuff, but what happens is, in the 70s and 80s, what begins to flourish is the idea of using molecules to understand evolution. So you take molecules from an organism, and then using various evolutionary models, you're able to extrapolate back to the past. And as people look at the DNA from the mitochondria and the DNA from the chloroplast. By the beginning of the 1980s, it's conclusive. The DNA of the chloroplast and the DNA of the mitochondrion is the DNA that's the most closely related to contemporary bacteria. And because of the other structural things of having membranes, having things inside the mitochondrion and chloroplast. Everybody is convinced by this. It takes a few years, but what was once a sort of strange, marginal idea, let's say even as late as the 60s, becomes a completely standard thing to think by the 80s and 90s.
3: Maureen O'Malley on the microbial meal which changed the world. And thanks to Lynn Margulis and others in the world of microbiology, that event in evolution is now pretty much the accepted theory. But will we ever have such a clear conclusion when we talk about life's origins? As Marcus put it,
9: We know very little now so um, we, we know how life looks today and we know from the geoscientists how the planet did look for billion years ago but we have no trace of the early life forms there is nothing left this is too long ago for billion years this is a long time for for living forms and therefore this is a field where there is a lot of speculation uh, opinions count a lot we have relatively little facts it gets better now because um, methods from the biosciences where you can test thousands of conditions have become available and they are recently also be applicable to the origin of life problem so so the smoke goes a little bit away from the mirror uh, but nonetheless this, compared to other biosciences this is a relative immature discipline considering how far it has become in explaining the problem we are working on
3: so without that wonderful time machine we may never know for sure but the smoke is moving away from the mirror and we're getting closer to understanding what was and wasn't possible and there are good reasons to keep probing this mystery of where we came from And one such reason is that if we have an idea of how life got going here, we might have a better chance of finding it elsewhere. And that, according to Dominic Papino, is no small thing.
6: The ultimate question is, uh, is there extraterrestrial life out there? And what what is its biochemistry? Once we have an answer to that question, then we will know that we are not, probably not a, a unique genesis of life. And I think that, uh, well, a a grand idea is that it can bring uh, hopefully uh, more mindfulness in the minds of people and hopefully peace in the world. Really, I I think it's a a possible way to make peace in the world because it it helps people uh, relate to one another because we are all of the same species.
3: Dominic Papineau, and thank you so much to all of my guests this week. That's Nick Lane, Laura Landweber, Milton Wainwright, Marcus Rouser, David Rothery, Jamie Jordan and Maureen O'Malley. Special thanks also to Timothy Crone and the Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory for their incredible recording of a deep-sea hydrothermal vent. And if you've enjoyed this program, please do watch out for a brand new strand, Naked Paleo, where I'll be following on from here, charting 4 billion years of evolution until we get to the here and now. Next week on the Naked Scientists, we'll be tapping into cybersecurity, from vulnerable laptops to online kettles. How exposed are we and can we keep our data safe? The Naked Scientist is brought to you from Cambridge University. It's sponsored by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and until next week, goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.